0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Psalm 122. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis in just a little while, but before we get there, uh, I think I think what's going on in our world compels us this morning to to stop and to pray for Israel. Um, so turn to Psalm 122. Out in the back foyer back there, there are some copies of this, if you want to take one with you. There's ways you can be praying for Israel. And all that we have seen, and quite frankly, what I've seen and what I've heard has just been um, overwhelming with the evil the evil. And yet again, we are confronted with the reality that that, that there there is evil that lurks in the hearts of human beings. And that when they act on that, well, Jeremiah, when he said that, Jeremiah 17, who can know the depths of the evil that lurks within the hearts of humanity? He was exactly right. Look at Psalm 122 together this morning. I was glad when they said to me let us go to the house of the Lord our feet have been standing within your gates O Jerusalem, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up and the tribes of the Lord as it was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord they are thrones for judgment were set the thrones of the house of David pray for the peace of Jerusalem may they be secure who love you Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let's bow together this morning. Father, we pause this morning and we acknowledge your sovereignty, your grace. We pause this morning and we just want you to know how thankful we are that you called us out of darkness in the light. And that, Father, not even one single moment have you ever forsaken us. Not even one single moment have you ever turned your back on us. And, Father, that your love and your grace and your mercy has been sufficient every single morning, fresh and new. That no matter how bad my failures have been, your grace has always been sufficient. And so, Father, we pause in this moment this morning uh, to pray for your people Israel, those descendants of Abraham, those whom you gave the covenant to, that all nations would be blessed because of them. And so, Father, we are called as a church body to pray. But not only to pray, but to pray for Israel specifically and to pray, Father, especially during this time where they are under attack. Even as we speak, Father, soldiers marching into the Gaza Strip, seeking to render justice to those who deserve it for the atrocities that they have committed, for the absolute, uncaring, unloving, absolute, inhuman way that they have treated the most innocent among us. Father, just when we think that we've seen it all, yet again, we're shocked by the evil that is around us. So, Father, we pray for peace. We pray for the people that you have called and set aside as descendants of Abraham. We we pray, Father, that there would be peace, not only in their land, but also in their heart. We pray, Father, that you would protect them. We pray, Father, that just as you have done all through history, time and space, we have seen over and over and over again the hatred for the Jewish people. And, Father, we've gotten to a point now where it's almost accepted, even celebrated. And, Father, in the 40s after the Holocaust, we never thought we would see a day return where a group of people were hated so much that they would be killed in the streets, even their children. And yet, Father, as time has passed, we see it yet again in all of its ugliness and all of its evil. And so, Father, we pray for your protection upon your people, the land that you have given them, the land you marked out. That is their land, Father. You gave it to them. And so, Father, we pray for your peace and we pray for your protection. We pray, Father, for justice. We know that you are a just God and we know, Father, that ultimately all will stand before you and all will give an account. Father, those who are aligned to a false God, those who are acting on behalf of a false God, they will bow the knee. They will be held accountable before you. They will not escape. So, Father, we ask for justice now through military force. We ask for justice, Father, in the lives of these who've lost so much. We pray, Father, for those believers, those who have put their faith in you as Messiah. Father, they're there in their own mission. They're there and they're proclaiming the gospel and have been for years. They're there and trying to help the Jewish people see that you are the Messiah, that you came and accomplished all that the the Old Testament prophets predicted. and, And yet, Father, they still reject and they still resist. We pray, Father, for those missionaries that are there. We pray for your divine protection upon them. And during this time, this great hurt, this great evil that has been perpetrated. We pray, Father, that this will be an opportunity for the Jewish people to come to faith in you. And, Father, we pray that light would shine in these dark places. We pray that Christ would be exalted, that he would be accepted that he would be acknowledged as Messiah and that the Jewish people would put their faith in him. We pray, Father, that as those missionaries do their work, that through this tragedy, eyes would be opened, that through this tragedy, hearts would be softened. Father, you have this incredible, amazing ability to take that which is bad and turn it around for good and turn it around for your glory. And so, Father, we know that You are working all things out according to your will. Nothing caught you by surprise. Father, you're not in heaven wringing your hands trying to figure out what to do. You are in complete and total control. And so, Father, we trust you. And, Father, we choose to worship you and praise you even in this. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of it. Thank you that every promise you've ever made, you will keep. That includes the promise that one day you will judge and you will bring justice and you will hold those accountable, all who have acted in evil. Father, there is a reckoning day coming. And as we look at Noah, it reminds us of the fact that what happened all those many years ago, that, Father, that is coming in the future, not through a flood, but through fire, not through a family and a boat, but through the return of your son in power and authority. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. We seek your face and your guidance this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Genesis chapter 7. As we continue to walk through these first 11 chapters, we, we come to this moment that Quite frankly, we, we all know this story pretty well. And I don't know if you realize this, but anybody who teaches God's Word, when we come to a text where it's a very familiar text, it almost makes it a little bit more difficult because there are some preconceived ideas that we get about this text from our culture and our upbringing that may not be exactly what's going on in the text. So Let's pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and, male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the, floods, when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah after, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. I have noticed something that um, seems to be increasing at a, at a quite fast pace. And it's the idea that a lot of our culture, a lot of people within our culture are living very recklessly. Now, this is not new. It's not new at all. As a matter of fact, no matter how far back you look, In your life, you're going to find people who are living very reckless lifestyles. Reckless meaning that they have no concern about the choices they are making. They are not concerned about uh, being held accountable. They don't seem to care that the choices they're making are affecting other people in their life. Uh, I am amazed at times when I when I meet with people who are who are making really bad choices and they're le- looking for some kind of counsel, they'll, they'll come to me and, and I'll, I'll mention to the fact that the choices you're making is, is the reason your life is in such a mess. And I will begin to kind of explain to them that if they continue to keep making those choices that they're going to lose everything. They're going to lose maybe their life, their family. And what has been incredibly amazing to me over 18 years of ministry is people who look at me and they'll say this, Pastor, I understand that if I keep doing this, this is going to happen. I understand that, but I'm not going to stop. Even when faced with the reality that what they're doing is hurting themselves and hurting others, they, they will not stop. They will not quit. They will not listen to sound counsel. They will not accept the reality that someday, somehow, at some point in their life, all of the choices that they're making is going to come back and that God is going to hold them accountable. It may be that they don't believe in God. It may be that they don't believe that God will actually hold them accountable. But the fact is, every time I get on I-95, every time I drive to Fayetteville and drive back, I am seeing lawlessness that quite frankly scares me to death. I don't know if I'm the only one. These narrow lanes that they've got on 95 with all this construction going on. I'm driving up through there and the speed limit says what? In bright numbers, they even have radar out there where blue lights will come on if you're going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And yet in spite of all of that, I'm trying to drive my 60. I've got crazy people. Driving 100 miles an hour up 95. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. They're driving. I had a motorcycle the other day. I had a, I had a guy on a street bike. I'm, I'm, behind, I'm beside of a truck. And this motorcycle comes between me and the truck, running at least 80 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, there's a guy. There's a guy who's living recklessly. He cares nothing about the other people in the cars. He cares nothing about families in minivans who are on their way onto vacation in Florida. They, they, he cares nothing about. All he cares about in that moment is doing what he wants to do. And folks, our culture is becoming more and more and more reckless. Our government has become reckless. They are printing money that we can't possibly be able to pay the bills, no matter how much printing of money we do, we have $33 trillion in debt. That debt is going to be handed down to the second, third, fourth, and maybe even fifth generation. And here's the crazy thing. We've not stopped printing money. We're still writing checks. We can't possibly back up. That is reckless, and nobody seems to care. All across our country, states district attorneys, have decided that there are certain crimes they're just not even going to punish anymore. That in certain areas, you can just walk into a convenience store and steal up to $500 worth of goods and nothing ever happened. That the idea that is that you can break law after law after law And never be held accountable is perpetuating the idea that not only will our governments not hold us accountable, but it perpetuates the idea that if there's a God out there somewhere, I can live any way that I want to and never have to be concerned about ever being held accountable. We live in a very reckless world. And I would offer to you that that's exactly the world that Noah was living in. You back up into chapter 6. It says that the culture in Noah's day— that people were committing acts, doing evil acts, whatever they could come up with, whatever was in their heart, whatever whatever they wanted to do, they did it. I would imagine that that murder I would imagine that that rape and all kinds of incredibly insidious evil things, whatever came to their mind, whatever came in their heart, they did it without any inhibition, without any, without holding back. A few weeks ago, we looked at Cain and Abel and We had there in that moment Abel offering worship to God, and we had Cain, who was not, and eventually Cain kills his brother in jealousy. But at least in that moment, we had some semblance of worship of God. By the time we get to Noah, and by the way, from Adam and Eve until Noah, 1,600 years have passed. 1,600 years. And in that span of time, after Cain kills Abel, we see the descendants of Cain. What happens is, as evil begins to flourish Evil that basically there's no restraints. It gets so bad that, that God determines that he's going to destroy his prized creation, humanity, and all those animals that are upon the land, he's going to wipe them out except for what's in the ark. Now, listen, God was not up in heaven thinking, okay, all right, this has gone wrong. I didn't expect that to happen, so now I've got to come up with some kind of plan. God knew exactly where this was going. God knew exactly what was going to happen, and God had a plan in place from the moment, well, in eternity past, but certainly from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God knew exactly what was going to happen, and what happened was is that sin has flourished. Hatred, the evil contents of the hearts of humanity everything that they could think up they did it without reservation without holding back the story of noah and the flood it goes all the way back to our childhood Right. When, anytime you think of Noah and the ark you, you start thinking about maybe the toys that you play with your kids with right we had a little uh, playmobile set I think it was had a boat and had all the animals had Noah had the white beard right and you would play with the kids and the animals would walk up the little ramp and you had maybe a wallpaper in your kids rooms maybe uh, the little mobile that was hanging over their crib maybe it was Noah and the ark we have all these ideas and these conceptions of, of Noah's ark but isn't it interesting that in the moment in time where God is going to kill off the entire human race, except for eight people. Isn't it interesting that sometimes our thinking about Noah's Ark is, well, far more lofty and maybe cartoonish than what's actually happening in the text. So today my approach on this is a little different. We're just going to walk quickly through the story of Noah and his family. But what I'm really interested in is to go over into the New Testament Because in the New Testament, Peter and Jesus in particular look back at this event and have some very intriguing things to say about how we should think about Noah and the ark. That beyond our uh, toys and beyond our uh, ideas of what Noah's ark was all about, uh, Peter and Jesus in particular give us great perspective on how we are to look at this particular story. So let's pick it up. Let's pick it up in verse 1. As we've already read, Noah and his family go into the ark. Later in this chapter, in verse 16, it says that the Lord shut the door, that the Lord put them into the ark. Now think about this. I don't know how many people were alive. I don't know, I don't know how big the population had gotten between those 1,600 years as we see the generations continue to multiply and fill the earth. I have no idea how many people were there. Let's say for the sake of argument, there's 20,000 people. I'm sure it's more than that. There's a number for us to work with. Out of those 20,000 people that are alive, 19,999 of them are doing everything that their heart desires. Notice that the Bible says that the reason Noah is allowed to escape is because Noah is a righteous man. Noah is a man who honors God. Noah is a man who has faith in God. And notice that because of Noah's faith, the rest of his family, well, is spared. We don't know anything about their life. We'll know a little later. About the choices that they make. But at this point, God saves eight people out of 20,000. The rest of them are going to perish. And it's because of the absolute evil and the participation in that evil, the choices that they're making. So here's what God does God says to Noah, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And in chapter six, he gives us all of the dimensions of this ark. And it's a massive, massive undertaking. Uh, historians tell us, and from what I can tell from Scripture, a hundred years passes from the time that God tells Noah to build the ark by the time he enters the ark. Uh, Noah's 500 years old, and then when he enters the ark, he's 600 years old. So is it possible that it took a hundred years to build this? Maybe. Nonetheless, Noah had another ministry, which we'll talk about in a little while, about what he's doing, not only preparing this ark, but also preparing the people. So they enter the ark. The Lord closes the door. And in this ark, there are animals that God has commanded that Noah would collect and put in there to save and prepare for the next phase of humanity. So they're in this ark, and the waters turn loose. It begins to rain. And it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And not only is the rain coming down, But the water is coming up. That God released the fountains of the deep and the water begins to to rise. And at that very moment, all the people who are outside of that ark begin to realize that judgment has come. So often in my years of ministry that people take it to that 10th degree when when the trouble comes, when the hardship comes, when the disease comes, when the doctor's report comes, all of a sudden they're faced with the reality of what they've been told their whole life, that if you continue to live this way you're going to destroy your life. And now they come to that moment when they're faced with that reality. Those outside of this ark are now faced with the reality that they are not going to survive. Inside of that ark, eight people and the animals that are there, they are going to be afloat on this vessel well for 300 days. 300 days they're going to be adrift. Now this ship, this boat, this box basically has no rudder. It has no, no wheel where, where Noah is guiding it. God placed them in there. God's eye was on Noah and his family before the ark was built. His eye has been on Noah and his family while they've been placed in the ark. And God's eye has been on this ark that they've been on and he is guiding it to his ends. It's adrift. And for 300 days, I can't imagine what life would be like, but for 300 days, They look out from the bow of that ship and they see nothing but water as far as the eye can see. On the 300th day, the boat lodges on one of the mountaintops of Ararat. And Noah begins to wonder if if the waters begin to recede. He's beginning to see maybe some peaks of some land. so ingeniously, Noah sends out a raven and a dove with the idea that if there's any land out there, if there's any habitable, habitable habitable, land that those birds would take up there, and sure enough, eventually, the dove he sends out comes back, and he has an olive branch. He sends the dove out a second time, and it never comes back. So after 300 days on the ark, and then he waits an additional time, and the total amount of time that they spend on this ark is... 370 days, and at the end of that 370 days, God allows them to leave the ark. And when they leave the ark, and we're going to look at this next week, Abraham Noah immediately builds an altar, and he worships God. After all of the pain and the distress and the hardship, the understanding that everything on the planet has been wiped out except for them, the first thing he does is He worships and honors God. So through this whole ordeal, through all that Noah and his family's been through, we would imagine that maybe, maybe God has finally purged the land of sin. Maybe, maybe once and for all, now through this judgment, we, we don't no longer have to deal with the sin and the struggle. Well, you would be wrong. And the reason you know that that's wrong is because of where we live today. And what's amazing is, is that the same thing that was going on in the hearts of humanity that led up to the judgment of God, well, guess what, has been happening all down through history, but it is especially prevalent today. Lawlessness, people doing whatever comes up in their mind, doing whatever comes up in their heart, just doing it freely without any concern, well, that should raise a question. Now, at the end of This journey, God makes a promise to Noah. And the promise is is that he's never going to destroy the earth again with water. But God does not say that he's never going to bring judgment again. He simply says that I will never judge the earth with water and a flood the way that I did. And he gives us a rainbow as a promise, as a a seal of that promise, saying I'm not going to do this again. But God did not say that he was never going to judge humanity again. So what do we learn from, from Noah's Ark? What do, we, what do we learn about this beyond what we learned in, in Vacation Bible School, beyond what we learned in Sunday School? What is the purpose of this narrative being included in the canon of Scripture? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go over in the New Testament. And we're going to look at how the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit look back to Noah's Ark And that's going to give us, well, some boundaries of how to think about Noah's ark. So we can maybe move beyond maybe the misconceptions that we might have and view it from a New Testament perspective. So 2 Peter chapter 2, we we need to get the context of what Peter's doing here. Peter, this is the Peter of the 12 disciples. This is the Peter who would often act kind of recklessly himself, uh, especially in the way he used his words. Oftentimes, his mouth would be about, I don't know, three or four steps ahead of his brain. He gets better with that by the time he writes these two letters. Uh, Peter is, well, a totally transformed man. And in chapter 2, like many of the other New Testament writers, he, he's going he's to highlight the reality that, that false teachers, false prophets are creeping into the church. So look at verse 1, chapter 2. But false prophets rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction? Now, notice that swift destruction. Now, what Peter's arguing here is that false teachers who've crept into the church, Peter is saying to the church, listen, God knows about them, and God is going to deal with them. The church has some responsibility in that, but make no mistake about it, these false teachers who are tearing down the church, God will deal with them. He's not forgotten about you. He's not turned his back on you. And the fact is, is that God is very aware and that God will act, verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them... The way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter highlights the damage these false teachers are doing. But again, he wants, he wants the church to understand that, that God is aware and that God will take care of it. Look at verse 4. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to give us some illustrations, some historical events in the Old Testament to, to show us as examples of how God responded to evil, sin, in relation to false teaching Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So Peter says, let me give you example number one. So this is, this is like evidence number one or example number one. In Jude, the book of Jude, we, we looked at this when we walked through that book, there was these angels that sinned and that, that God condemned them to a pit and chained them and brought judgment upon them. So the first evidence that Peter gives that God will always act against evil, the first one is these angels that that sin. The next one, look at this, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the next piece of evidence that Peter submits is remember Noah. And remember at that time how the world had become ungodly and that God was fully aware of what was going on. So God made preparations not only to spare eight people, but to bring judgment upon those who were doing every bit of evil they could think of. So the first example, the angels. The second example, Noah. Notice how Noah is described here, a herald of righteousness. Now, in your translation, you may have the word there, the preacher of righteousness. Peter seems to indicate that During this period of time where God has revealed to Noah that he's going to judge the world and that Noah is to build an ark to prepare for this judgment, apparently Noah had been given a responsibility to proclaim God's judgment coming to the ungodly people that were around him. That word herald basically means to proclaim. And that that Noah... Being a righteous man, meaning that his faith was in God, that he obeyed God and he trusted God, apparently, that during that season of time, maybe that hundred years between when Noah was 500 and 600, when he entered the ark, Noah has been called to proclaim the truth to the people around him. But no one responded, no one repented. He says that the world was was filled with ungodly people. So Noah, I don't know how Noah did it. I don't know what he said. I just know that here, according to Peter, Noah was given a responsibility to speak the truth. We shouldn't be surprised by that. All through the Old Testament, what do we find? We find God's judgment getting ready to fall on the nation of Israel because they turned to idolatry. What does God do? He sends prophets, proclaimers, preachers, someone who will speak and herald the truth to call them to repentance. Noah was sent to herald the truth. Look at the third entry of evidence. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I want you to focus in on one phrase. Peter says that God has given these angels chained in a pit. He has given Noah, the story of Noah, this, this event of, of Noah building the ark and the flood coming, and Sodom and Gomorrah where he destroyed. He, he is saying that God has given us examples of how God will always keep his promises and that not one single person who is doing the evil contents of their heart will ever escape a holy God who will ultimately hold them accountable. Not just them, but us as well. The idea is, is that whether in life or in death, you will be held accountable by the creator of this universe. There is no one who will escape. There's no, there's no one who's going to, who, who, is, who is going to escape having to give an account of their life before holy God. Nobody is. Even as a, even as a believer in Christ, even as as someone who's put their faith in Jesus, who's been forgiven, who's been adopted, I will still give an account of my life to Jesus. The Bible says that from the moment I was born again until the time that I die, everything that I did as a follower of Jesus, I will have to give an account for. Now, in that moment, I have no fear of hell. I have no fear of God's wrath because that's already been paid for and accounted for by Christ. For everyone who rejects Christ, everyone who rejects the gospel, not only will you stand before God, but you will stand there without being forgiven. You will stand there without the covering that Christ provides. You will stand there without Jesus. And in doing so, you'll be condemned. So, either in this life or in the next, make no mistake about it, you're going to be held accountable for the choices that you make in this life. Peter says, look at verse 9. He sums it up by saying this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So on the one hand, if your faith is in Jesus, make sure you understand that that God will rescue you. You are in the palm of God's hand and nothing shall pluck you out. You are safe and secure within the kingdom of God as his children. God knows how to take care of his kids. But notice what else Peter says. Peter says, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in a lust of defiling passion, and look at these last two words, despise authority. Those reckless folks that we're seeing all around us, they despise authority. Peter says that for those who despise authority and indulge their flesh without any concern about ever being held accountable, well, just as much as God will preserve those who have faith in Him, He will also condemn and punish those who do not. There is no, sec- there is no third path here. There is no back door into heaven. There is no somehow in the future, God's just going to say, oh, okay, y'all weren't that bad, and I'm just going to welcome everybody in. That's not how this works. There are two paths and only two paths. One leads to righteousness, one leads to heaven, one leads to eternal, a uh, eternal place with God in heaven, and the other leads to separation from God. There is no other way for me to put this other than the fact that you're on one of those two paths, period. There's no middle path. All religions don't lead to utopia. You are either a part of the kingdom or you're not. And God is faithful. He will take care of those who are, and he will judge those who are not. Two paths, only two. Why is it that people reject the warnings? I mean, one of the consistent things all through Scripture, all through Scripture, here we have warnings, clear warnings, even warnings that accompany signs of miracles in the New Testament and the Old, and people reject it. I've heard it said many a time, that if God will just work a miracle, if God will just show up, if God will just reveal himself, if God will do this, if God will do that, I will believe. No, you won't. You know why I believe that? You know why I believe that even in that you still won't believe? Because I have a record of 66 books of people who saw miraculous, saw Jesus raise a dead man to life, and people still didn't believe. They still hung him on a cross. People who, who wandered in the desert, for 40 years being miraculously supported by the very hand of God, and yet, they didn't believe. Why is it? Let me give you three reasons why people reject the warnings. Number one, they are enjoying the evil they're in. They're just enjoying it. I remember what that's like before I came to faith in Christ. You see that tension of that moment when when God is dealing with your heart, and you're hearing the gospel and that tension of that moment when you realize that I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to give this up to follow Jesus. I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to let go of this so I can hold on to him. And so there comes that moment where you're standing at that crossroads where you weigh it out and you go, you come to this conclusion. Some of you've came to this conclusion. That's why you've not put your faith in Jesus yet. You come to this place and you go, you know what, I like this. I'm enjoying this. So for me to give it up, to follow Jesus, well, that just doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing because I enjoy it. It It brings happiness into my life. It makes me feel good. Whether that be the indulgences of your flesh or whatever that may be, you've weighed it out and you've decided that the sin you're participating in is better than Jesus and what he has to offer So there you stand, holding on to the world and not willing to surrender all to Christ. Here's another reason people will not accept the warning or why they reject it. They're just not concerned about God or his standards. just have zero concern about the church, about what is true and what is right and what is wrong. There's just no concern. I think think this this one concerns me as much as any of them because when I'm, when I'm talking with someone who is living a lifestyle that is just bringing incredible brokenness into their life, and I begin to share with them what the truth is, and they just look at me like, I don't care. The apathy, oh my goodness. It, it, is, it is very hard. Well, I, there's nothing I can say. To get beyond that apathy, the Holy Spirit has to do the work in that person's life. There's no speech I've got. There's nothing I've got other than the Word of God that the Holy Spirit can use to break your heart. But people who don't care, you've got family members that are lost. And when you try to talk to them about Jesus, they simply do not care about God, about the Bible, about your faith. It's very hard to get past that. But they're rejecting all of the warnings, the warnings that that they have in their own life with the choices they're making. They're rejecting all of it because they simply are apathetic. They don't care. And third, and this is a big one, they they simply do not believe that they're ever going to be held accountable. I can do what I want to do. I can live how I want to live. I can make my own choices. Nobody's ever going to hold me accountable. I'm above that. I I would call that the God-like complex of their life. They believe that themselves themselves to be some kind of God. They wouldn't say that, but they believe that they are because they believe that they will never, ever be held accountable. They believe they can do whatever they want to do. They can live however they want to live. They themselves believe that they're in control. Does this, does those three descriptors, does that describe anybody you know? Worse yet, does that describe you? Is, Is that where you are right now? Let's move on to what Jesus had to say about Noah. Go over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is asked a question. And the question that the disciples ask him, because Jesus has been talking about leaving them. As a matter of fact, right after this, this is called the Olivet Discourse. Right after this, Jesus is going to uh, be arrested Uh, The trials are going to begin, eventually leading to crucifixion. But prior to that, in this Olivet Discourse, Jesus is asked, what are the signs that we can look for when you're going to return? Because Jesus has not only talked about him leaving, but he's also talked about him returning. So the disciples are interested in knowing how will we know when you are coming in judgment. And in verse 32, he gives an illustration of a fig tree. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts on leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, in their day, they're trying to determine, okay, when is the summer months beginning to start? When is warm weather coming? So what they would do is they would look at a fig tree. When the fig tree began to bear leaves, they would know that summer is not too far off. So verse 33. So, also, when you see all these things, all these things referenced in the earlier part of the Olivet Discourse, he says, Know that he is near at the very gates. In other words, Jesus says that when you, when you look at what's going on and you see these things being fulfilled, you need to understand that, that I am standing at the very threshold of returning to this earth in judgment. Verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. Listen to this, but my words will not pass away. Now, that is powerful. What does that mean? It means that every promise that the Godhead Trinity has made. Everything else can pass away. The cosmos can burn up and be gone. But the words of God will stand true down through the ages. God will never be found to be a liar. God will never be found to be someone who is subversive, where he's saying one thing and doing something else. God's word will stand true. Now read on. Notice what Jesus does next. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, pause. Jesus being God in the flesh, Jesus being there at the moment of creation, Jesus being aware and involved and aware of all that is happening in those 1,600 years between Adam and Eve and Noah. Jesus being intimately aware of the condition of the hearts of humanity that led up to the flood. And this is what Jesus says. It will be at the end of time, just like it was in the early stages of time, that the human heart, get this, will begin doing whatever it can think, just like what we see in Genesis 6. But I want you to notice what the people are doing. Are they they shuddering in fear because of the sins they've committed? Are are they hiding in a cave from God, concerned that God is going to judge them? No. Look at what happens. This was happening in Noah's day, and it's going to be happening at the end of time before Jesus returns in the second coming. Notice what they're doing. Verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came. Unaware? Unaware? They rejected what Noah proclaimed. They were going on with life because they were thinking that nothing was ever going to happen to them. So life was just going on as normal. They were continuing to do what they wanted to do. They were continuing to engage in what they wanted to engage in. Everything their heart could think of, they did it without any kind of restraint. Jesus says at the end of time, Before his second coming, we're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about Jesus' second coming, which is incredible to consider because during that tribulation period, humanity has seen God's power on display. Remember when we walked through the book of Revelation? All those incredible works that God does and all the things that he pours out upon this planet, they're seeing it firsthand. And yet, right before Jesus returns, what are they doing? They're living life. No concern No worries, marrying, partying, enjoying life. I don't think that's too far removed from the culture in which we live today. Both Noah's culture and that generation that will be on this planet when when Jesus returns. In fact, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference, but I also think that, that what we see right now has to bring to our hearts as followers of Jesus, has to bring to our, our mind that maybe, just maybe, God's judgment is not that far off. Maybe, just maybe, that the indication of what we see in our culture, the, the same thing that Noah saw, the same thing that will be happening at the end of time, that where we live right now is the precursor. And in fact, that people are living exactly the way they did and have been for a very long time. No concern for God. No concern for retribution. One last text, 1 Timothy. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. I'm going to read this list for you because I think Paul summarizes really well uh, what people are going to be doing and acting, how they're going to be living their life during the last days. Second Timothy chapter 3. I'm just going to read this and then we're going to close. See if this sounds familiar. Paul is writing to Timothy who's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is living in abject evil and sinfulness. They they are absolutely embracing everything that is ungodly and debased. That's where Timothy receives this letter. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. But understand this, that in the last days there will become times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They will be brutal, Not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, people who practice these things, people who have invested their life into these things, he says, Timothy, Timothy, avoid these people. You see, they don't believe that judgment's going to come. They don't believe that they're going to be held accountable. If 2 Timothy chapter 3 is not a clear description of our current culture, I don't know what it is. And it's the same culture that Noah experienced and God brought judgment. It's the same culture that was happening at Sodom and Gomorrah, and God brought judgment. It was the same culture that infected Israel, and God brought judgment. And sent them into 70 years of captivity. It's the same exact culture that Jesus experienced when he would interact with the people around him. It's this exact same culture that we see in the book of Revelation at the end of time, and it's the exact same culture that's alive and well today, and it is welcoming the judgment of God that God has promised, and he will keep that promise either in his return or at your death, you are going to face your creator. And there will be no excuses. And unless you have Christ in your life, unless Christ has changed you, forgiven you, covered you in his blood, whereby you are cleansed, justified, made whole, and adopted into God's family, unless you have that, you will have nothing else to depend upon. Because there is nothing else to depend upon in that moment. Why do people not believe in this day of reckoning? Why do they not accept the fact that one day they're going to die? One day they're going to leave this world. Thousands of years have passed, they say. Thousands of years have passed. No sign. Nothing has happened. Preachers have been proclaiming this, and nothing has happened. Well, make sure you understand just because thousands of years have passed does not mean that God will ever, ever break his promise. Remember, every word will stand. Well, God's not going to judge me because God is love. I heard that, that God loves everybody and that God accepts everybody. And Lord, I heard on the, the news or I heard in the culture or I heard in society or I heard on social media that, that God is love. And, and so therefore, he's going to accept me no matter what I do. Well, that's a really good lie that Satan has perpetuated across this globe. Yes, God is love. But in love, he's also a judge, and he will hold you accountable because God can't tell a lie. And the fact is that we were all born into sinfulness and brokenness. We're all broken. We, we've all, we were all born in rebellion against God. Well, the other one, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as the person down the street. I'm not as bad as the person that I saw online doing this. I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. Are you perfect? Because that's what's required. And you can't obtain it, and I can't either. That's why I had to come to this place where I put my faith in something greater than myself. Folks, the reality is what this Noah's Ark teaches. It, t- it teaches us that God is going to judge. It teaches us that, if anything, God is consistent in what He does, and that there is no way you are going to escape. There is no way you are going to sidestep this judgment apart from Christ. There is no way that you're going to find some back door. There is no way you're going to be able to get away from the judgment of God apart from Christ. So I appeal to you, I plead for you, I plead with you, and I plead for you to put your faith in Jesus before it's too late. Put your faith in him. Surrender to him. He loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love so much that he would allow his son to die in your place. And what he is doing is he's compelling you. He's calling you, he's drawing you. He's saying, if you want to escape the coming night, it's only by faith